We are joined by Cynthia Kerner, who is professor of history at George Mason University, a specialist in the fields of early American women and gender and early Southern history. Uh, Cindy is the author of several books, including Scandal at Bazaar, Rumor, and Reputation in Jefferson's America. Martha Jefferson Randolph, daughter of Monticello, Her Life and Times. Changing History, Virginia Women Through Four Centuries. And most recently, in the topic of today's talk, Inventing Disaster, The Culture of Calamity from the Jamestown County to the Johnstown Flood, copies of which will be available for sale. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure is a rather enjoyable and epic read considering the subject. So I'm thrilled to be with you to hear her talk. And I hope that you will join me in a very warm welcome for Cindy Kerner. All right. Um, as you can tell from that introduction, um, this book is a fairly dramatic departure um, from my past work. So where did it come from? In 2012, as you might remember, Superstorm Sandy pummeled New York City and the Jersey Shore. Um, I found that storm really fascinating um, because it destroyed places that I cared a lot about. That's my childhood roller coaster. <laughs> it was not in the ocean when I rode on it. Um, and I, so I found stories about this storm really riveting, um, especially the human interest stories um, about its victims, survivors, about different efforts to provide post-disaster relief, um, the ways in which the whole situation became politicized, in part because it happened so soon before a presidential election. And I also found interesting what all of these stories told us about the larger worlds of New York, New Jersey, and the United States generally in 18, in 18, right? See, I want to be a historian, in 2012. <laughs> Equally important, um, as I read and I watched the news, I noticed that it followed a pattern that was familiar to me from Katrina and from other disasters. First came the quantitative information about what happened how many people died, how much property was destroyed, and the value of that property. Second came the human interest stories, mostly uplifting stories about relief and resilience. Third and finally came the post-disaster investigation and recriminations. This is a three-step process, and this three-step process is how we do disaster. This is what the culture of calamity looks like in 21st century America. So when Sandy struck, um, I was looking for a new book project. And my new Sandy obsession seemed to point me in a fruitful direction. A few years earlier, as Jamie indicated, I had written a book about a sex scandal that occurred in Virginia in the 1790s. They put blood on the cover. It was awesome. <laughs> That book was what historians call a micro-history. In other words, a project that uses a single, very specific event or story as a window onto the past. So why not find an early American disaster and write a micro-history about it? In other words, an enlist an engaging and dramatic story in the service of teaching and learning and thinking about history. Seemed like a great idea. 
And it was um, until I encountered a major problem. I couldn't find an early American disaster suitable for a book-length study. I was looking for stories about tearful sufferers, um, about inspired efforts at disaster relief and prevention in the 17th or 18th century, and there was little to be found. It wasn't that bad things didn't happen in early America. They happened all the time, right? I mean, there were epidemics, there were hurricanes, there were fires, there were all sorts of bad things happening. But these events didn't have the same expansive cultural impact back then. And even more important for a historian looking for sources, they didn't result in the voluminous cultural production pictures, stories, newspaper articles, things of that sort that they would um, in a later era. So my project evolved. Instead of writing about a specific event, I began with a new research question, which is actually something that we try to teach our students to do, begin with a question. So my question was how and when did the idea um, did ideas, rather, about the causes, consequences, and meanings of famines, fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, epidemics, and other catastrophic events become recognizably modern? When did that happen, and why? So my answer, I'm going to give you my answer briefly, and then I'm going to talk about more stuff. But So my answer briefly um, is that how we do disaster today our culture of calamity, if you will, is a product of the Enlightenment with a capital E. And the Enlightenment with a capital E was, as most of you probably know, a cultural and intellectual movement of the late 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and it was an intellectual and cultural movement that celebrated human reason, that celebrated the pursuit of knowledge, that encouraged people to believe in the possibility of human progress, that people can make things better by the use of their reason. And there are three aspects of the Enlightenment that I think are especially relevant in terms of this development of this modern culture of calamity. Number one, the spread of information. Information is just a whole lot more available um, to people um, during the Enlightenment period and, and then thereafter. Um, initially, information travels by way of letters written by government officials, explorers, merchants, people on the move. Um, but later, it becomes even more widely accessible in this growing world of print culture that included newspapers, magazines, broadsides, sermons, treatises, travelogues, really bad poetry, um, and novels, many of which were bad as well. Um, the Enlightenment is the age of the novel, right? Or the beginning of the age of the novel. So that's the first thing, information. Secondly, this new belief in human agency and progress that, that I mentioned um, inspired efforts to understand hurricanes, earthquakes, and, and other things of that sort, rather than just accepting them, not only to understand them, um, but to find ways to limit their bad effects. In other words, science, right? The Enlightenment is all about using reason to understand things um, and, and, and sometimes to make things better. Um, and this is kind of what science is ultimately all about. And then third and finally, um, a new appreciation for emotion and for sympathy for the suffering of others. Um, 
being able to experience fellow feeling with suffering was increasingly seen at the time as a sign of virtue. If you could, as Bill Clinton used to say, feel your pain, um, then, then in fact that meant that you were, you were a good person. Um, this is a quality that people at the time called sensibility, right? Um, and that's mostly associated with the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and it was a really key factor um, in explaining the huge popularity of novels, especially sentimental novels, during this period. So the book begins in Jamestown, the death trap that was the English colony of Jamestown in Virginia, where roughly five out of every six settlers died between the founding of the colony in 1607 and 1624, um, when the king revoked the Virginia Company's charter and made Virginia a royal colony. Jamestown was a death trap. Um, colonists died mostly of famine and disease, like endemic disease. Um, in other words, things that we today would likely characterize as disasters. But the culture surrounding these episodes was nothing like, say, um, the response to the famine in Ethiopia in the 1980s. Virtually no one knew about the horrific situation in Jamestown because there were no newspapers, certainly no TV or radio or anything like that. And the colony's London-based corporate sponsors back in London did everything they could to keep the situation quiet. They didn't want people to know that Jamestown was such a death trap. People would stop coming. People would stop investing. So there was no information, really, um, about the troubles at Jamestown. The only disaster relief for Jamestown was to send more people and hope they didn't die, but of course they did. Um, five out of six, or most of them did. Um, so Jamestown was kind of my baseline. It's a time and a place where bad things happened, um, but where the response to those bad things that happened um, was non-existent, and, and I mean, I would just kind of call it pre-modern, right? It's not at all the way we respond to disasters today. So moving on from Jamestown, a thorough search of kind of every kind of source I could get my hands on um, for the century or so after Jamestown led me to shipwreck stories. Um, which became an important literary genre as Europeans embarked on voyages of exploration, trade, and colonization in the early modern period. So the book's second chapter, if Jamestown doesn't thrill you, the book's second chapter is actually about shipwrecks. Because in a very basic way, shipwreck stories brought together those three elements of Enlightenment culture that I mentioned earlier, information, science, and sensibility. First of all, information about shipwrecks was widely available, in part because of the appeal of these adventure stories, right, the shipwreck narratives, but also because of readers' very practical interest in the military and economic value of ships and their cargoes. One could make an argument that the first newspapers in the American colonies are really all about publishing where ships are going, what they're carrying, um, and when they sink, you know, how much property is being lost as a result of it. People were really interested in this stuff. Second, although many early shipwreck stories were just kind of simple, unemotional tallies of human and property losses, 
More sentimental accounts became common in newspapers, but also in literature and in graphic art. And I'm finally going to get rid of the roller coaster and show you this. Um, the painting um, by the French artist Claude Vernet um, called The Shipwreck, how original, um, in, was painted in 1772. This is the cover of my book. It's an awesome painting in real life. It's, it's huge, it's colorful, it's dramatic. Um, but if you look at it, right, what the painting is telling a story of is not just the wreck of the ship, but the sad situation of the people suffering as a result of it. So you see, you know, people trying to get to shore, people hanging on the mast of the ship, um, people, you know, kind of kind of half naked on the beach trying to recover, a woman, you know, raising her hands to, to sort of, um, you know, ask for God's help. Um, the significant less colorful illustration here um, is the cover page um, for a poem also called The Shipwreck um, that was written in 1769 by a guy named William Falconer um, who was English and he was both a sailor and um, a poet. And so the actual title of the book, the full title is The Shipwreck, a sentimental and descriptive poem. So, I mean, I'm telling you, it's sentimental. You don't have to believe me. It's on the cover. And he's telling us that, that, that that's kind of what the point is. Um, no one's ever heard of this poem today, and, and it really is quite a slog to read it. However, um, it went through many, many editions um, from 1769, really up until the 1830s and 40s, um, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, in other words, both in England and in, in North America. So we're getting sentimental stories about shipwrecks in the same way that we're later going to get sentimental stories about Katrina and Sandy and so forth. And then third and finally, um, the science bit. More cool pictures. Um, shipwrecks and, hum and the human and financial losses they caused led to important efforts by scientists and inventors to prevent maritime disasters, um, or at least to limit the loss of life that occurred as a result of them. Um, so they experiment with improvements in maritime architecture, and they also invent a variety of flotation devices. Um, and here are two notable examples. Um, the example on your right, my left, is the first life jacket made of cork, um, which is patented by um, a British physician inventor um, in the 1760s. And then my personal favorite, this is one of my favorites of the book's illustration. It's kind of like, it's called a hydropsis, which who knows, right? Um, but, it, but it's kind of like, it's made of wood and it's hollow and it's kind of like a 3D squared off donut. And as you can see from the picture, there are hinges. So it opens and you can put it around your waist if you're shipwrecked. You can lock it so that it's going to be secure. And if you look at the picture, you can see that there are secret compartments on the in, built into it. So you can put like not only important papers that you want to save from the water, but like food and stuff so that like if you're shipwrecked for a long time you have stuff to eat and drink and if you know unfortunately you have like a small child with you you can sit the small child this is like one of my favorite things and it, and I don't think it ever caught on but the life jackets did um, and the important point is that these innovations are important early examples of people 
um, using science, not simply accepting bad things that happen as acts of God that they couldn't do anything about, but rather using their ingenuity, using their intelligence um, to solve potentially fatal problems. Um, I love those pictures. In terms of a specific disaster um, with a huge cultural impact, um, the watershed moment was the great Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which killed tens of thousands of people and utterly destroyed the Portuguese capital. Most scholars consider Lisbon um, the, the first modern disaster. They actually use that, that phrase to describe it. And they use that phrase for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, news and information about the disaster in Lisbon spread very quickly by letters, by newspapers. It spreads throughout Europe, throughout North America, um, and South America as well, where Portuguese obviously had colonies. Um, it elicited cultural commentary from basically everyone who was anyone in 1755 had something to say about the Lisbon earthquake. Um, and the people who wrote about it um, were as diverse as John Wesley, um, the English founder of the Methodist Church, um, to more secular-minded people like Voltaire, shown here. Um, Voltaire, if you've heard of him at all, is probably known to you as the author of Candide, um, which is a kind of satirical story that, that is set in the aftermath of the Lisbon earthquake. Um, Voltaire also wrote, though, this poem upon the Lisbon disaster, which is not satirical at all. It's, it's in fact, you know, very sad and very affecting. Um, and also very, very graphic in terms of describing what you would have seen in the aftermath of Lisbon. It's long, but I've chosen the sexiest verse for my um, slide. Um, okay, so, you know, close your eyes and imagine. Women and children heap up mountain high, limbs crushed under which ponderous marble lie, wretches unnumbered in the pangs of death, who mangled, torn, and panting for their breath, buried beneath their sinking roofs expire, and end their wretched lives in torments dire. I mean, this is, this is pretty hot stuff. Um, some people did indeed view the earthquake um, as a sign of divine vengeance, um, but the Lisbon disaster also led to sustained scientific investigations of earthquakes and their physical causes, um, and also scientific observations um, about Lisbon in the aftermath of the earthquake really shaped um, a very ambitious government-funded rebuilding of the Portuguese capital after the earthquake was over. So science is really important in terms of understanding what happened and trying to prevent what had happened from happening again. At the same time, um, poetry and stories um, about Lisbon tugged at people's heartstrings and inspired an unprecedented number um, of visual images, not just poetry, but visual images, um, some of which was available really quickly um, so like this image, which, which I got from um, the Royal Picture Collection at Windsor Castle, very cool place to visit, by the way, um, it, it was available on the streets of London, London booksellers, um, within a month 
um, of the actual earthquake, which is really, really fast for the 18th century. Um, this before and after setup was something that was very popular. Um, the before part, which is very detailed and would have taken a lot of time to do, was done significantly before the earthquake. Um, the after part, which is just kind of like a mess, you could like make that really quickly, was done in the immediate aftermath. They tacked on an eyewitness subscription, and boom. I mean, people had this that they could, I don't know, hang in their living room. I'm not sure what you would do with it. But anyway, the idea was that when we're talking about Lisbon, we are talking about not just poetry, not just newspaper accounts, not just letters and everything, but an unprecedented number um, of pictures. Um, the Lisbon earthquake also significantly gave rise to the first international relief effort, disaster relief effort in world history. So it's kind of a big deal in that regard as well. Um, I'm interested in Lisbon mostly for its impact on the English-speaking world, right? I mean, I'm interested in the British Empire. I'm interested in what eventually becomes the United States. Um, and I would argue that the earthquake had a profound impact throughout the English-speaking world, and not only because England and Portugal were longtime military allies, um, and because there was, in fact, a community of English merchants um, living and working um, in Lisbon. For my purpose, what was most significant about the earthquake was its effect on British philanthropy and benevolence. Um, at the time in the 1750s, philanthropy was growing enormously in Great Britain, um, especially with newly wealthy merchants looking for ways to use good works to enhance their stature in society. Um, what was different about the response to Lisbon, though, was the unprecedented contribution of government to post-disaster relief, um, specifically um, king George II, who, you know, as kings go, was not one of your glamour kings. He was like in his 80s. He didn't speak English. He only spoke German. But um, he very, very publicly, presumably through a translator, um, sent, donated um, 100,000 pounds in money and provision, um, provisions to help the Portuguese. Um, and, and that really unprecedented. And on both sides of the Atlantic, his subjects praised him for his generosity. Um, which fit very nicely with Britain's emerging sense of themselves as a uniquely enlightened and benevolent people. So people are writing poems saying what a great guy George is, and well, of course we'd have a great king, we're a great people. And I mean, here's an example of, of some of that bad poetry that I alluded to, praising George's bounties, his liberal hand, his tender heart, um, bequeathing stuff to a foreign land. So, so they're, they're, you know, they're really enthusiastic about the king and the fact that having such a benevolent monarch reflects well on the British nation generally, um, both in Great Britain and in British North America. And as colonists in America lavishly praised their benevolent monarch, they also came to expect relief from the mother country when disaster struck. And this is something that they had previously neither expected nor received. Between the Lisbon earthquake in 1755 and American independence in 1776, colonists looked to London for relief after hurricanes, floods, and fires, and they typically did get some. 
um, though it was more likely to come from these philanthropic committees um, of merchants and clergy than it was to come directly from the king and parliament. Um, but the main point that I'm trying to make is that disaster relief sort of becomes a thing in the aftermath of Lisbon, and the, peop and the colonists saw themselves as part of a larger British imperial community, and that more often than not, people in Britain had information about disasters that happened in the American colonies, and that they also made some sort of donation that singled that signaled, rather, their sympathy um, for people who were suffering in America. Um, so I could give you a lot of examples of this happening within that relatively brief window before American independence. And there are more in the book, but I'm going to stick with four for now, because otherwise you'll all be hungry and you'll leave to have lunch and, and whatever. All right, so chronologically, first off, in March of 1760, there's a big fire in Boston. There are fires in Boston all the time. The buildings are made of wood. This one's a big one. They call it the Great Fire because it was a great fire. Um, there were no deaths. Um, surprisingly, people, there are fires all the time, but people rarely die because most of the buildings are low, right? So there are no deaths, um, but about, 40, four, about 400 buildings were destroyed totaling at least 50,000 pounds sterling in property losses, a lot of money. More than 200 families um, are left homeless. What happens? Well, the king's representative in Massachusetts, the royal governor, a guy by the name of Thomas Pownall, decides that he needs to step in, that, that, that he needs to help. And he creates this successful fundraising effort by contacting all of the royal governors from Nova Scotia to Virginia and asking for them to help, and they do. It's a very successful sort of government-sponsored or at least governor-sponsored um, intervention that helps people in Boston in the aftermath of the fire. Five years later, in May of 1765, there's another fire in Montreal this time. Um, Montreal in 1765 is a relatively recent addition to the British Empire, um, having been conquered by Great Britain um, in 1763 um, with the, the victory over the French um, in the Seven Years' War. You know, a lot of, of the overwhelming majority of people in Montreal are French. They're kind of like, well, you know, we've spent our lives hating the British. We're not real keen about, you know, kind of being theirs now, that's not cool. Well, the fire in Montreal in some ways was a perfect opportunity for the British Empire and specifically the king to do PR about you know, how great it is to be in the British Empire and we'll take care of you and so forth. The fire in Montreal killed 10 people. Property losses were roughly comparable to Boston's. Um, and this time, the royal governor um, of Quebec, a guy named James Murray, decides he's going to do a fundraising effort um, that was kind of similar to Pownall's. Um, his was much less successful, mostly because of the Stamp Act crisis. People in the kind of lower 13 are like, eh, you know, we're kind of pissed at you guys now. We're not really going to give you any money. Um, but a fundraising committee, uh, mostly of London-based merchants, raised about 9,000 pounds for Montreal. Um, and King George III, who had succeeded his grandfather by this time, also pitched in um, 500 pounds in humanitarian relief um, and also sent a statue of his very benevolent self. 
telling you, PR. And, and so that statue, or that's what was left of the statue, interestingly, eventually pulled down by English Montrealers, not by the French ones, um, was placed in the Place d'Armes, the, 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 the city square um, in Montreal, um, with this um, inscription that basically talks about, you know, what a benevolent dude King George was relieving the distresses of the inhabitants of his city of Montreal after the fire. Um, this was the cover of the fundraising pamphlet um, used by the people who were raising money in London for the fire. Uh, this standing figure here of the woman is Britannia. The kneeling figure, another female figure, is supposed to represent Montreal, and we know it's supposed to represent Canada because there's a beaver right next to her. <laughs> beaver, be, you know, the, Montreal being the center of the fur trade, and the poor beavers were the fur that got traded, right? Um, and then you see the the the, the city, you know, burning um, in the background, um, and so there's a good response to that as well. In 1772, um, in August, there's a major hurricane in the Leeward Islands in the Caribbean. These are British colonial possessions. Um, there are hurricanes in the Caribbean all the time, of course, even back then. But this one was a particularly bad one. Hundreds of people died. At least 21 ships and their cargoes were destroyed. Um, and property losses totaled about a half a million pounds sterling. Interestingly, in 1772, though, minimal aid comes from London. And the reason for that is that London is in the midst of a profound financial crisis. So the very people who would be likely to send aid to the colonies um, are not really in a position to do that. The king, though, does send 2,000 pounds um, to help rebuild a destroyed military barracks um, and a hospital. And then my fourth example, also from the Caribbean, this time Barbados and Jamaica, um, October 1780. Another hurricane. Um, this one much, much worse. Indeed, I think it's still the worst hurricane um, in Caribbean history. As many as 30,000 people died. Um, nearly two million pounds sterling in property losses. And of course, by 1780, we're talking about a very, very different sort of context. Jamaica and Barbados were loyal colonies during the American Revolution. In other words, they could have declared independence. People in North America wanted them to declare independence, but they did not. So the King and Parliament send 120,000 pounds sterling in hurricane relief, in disaster relief. Um, George III personally donated 5,000 pairs of shoes for the island militia, and significant funds were also raised by merchants and by others in Britain who organized disaster relief efforts. Okay, so what all of this, you know, crash course in imperial disaster relief should tell you, among other things, that number one, disaster relief was a thing. It was something that happened um, between, you know, the 1750s and the 1780s. But that both the quality and the quantity of imperial disaster relief was situational. In other words, it, it mattered what kind of a context the disaster happened in. So for instance, hurricane relief for Jamaica and Barbados in 1780 was a political dividend that colonists in the British West Indies earned by virtue of their loyalty to the king and empire during the American Revolution. And interestingly, government-sponsored benevolence and disaster relief in fact, became standard practice within the British Empire 
after the war was over, um, at least for the next couple of decades. Americans who declared their independence in 1776, by contrast, established political institutions that did not provide relief to people who suffered the ravages of hurricanes, fires, and other calamities. The response to the yellow fever epidemic that killed more than 5,000 people in Philadelphia in 1793 is instructive. It affects pretty much the whole city, but the red parts are obviously the, the, the most profoundly affected. This epidemic is important for a lot of reasons, and a lot of people have written about it. But for me, what's important about it was it's the first test of how the United States government would respond to a deadly disaster. And at the time, Philadelphia was home to, in fact, three governments, federal, state, and local, all of which fled the city as soon as the epidemic happened. They're like, oh, sorry, we're out of here. No, we're going. Um, at the time, Philadelphia you know, it was deserted by government types. Citizen volunteers were left behind to tend the sick and to bury the dead. Um, and if you look at President Washington's correspondence with his cabinet during this period, um, it indicates that the nation's leaders saw the war in Europe between Britain and France um, as, as much more pressing business than the fever in Philadelphia. This is the thing that they're writing about. And when Congress reconvened, eventually, debates about adopting a national quarantine law centered on the proposal's constitutionality, not its potential to save lives. Congress first considered something that kind of looks like um, disaster relief legislation, um, after a fire happened in the city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in December 1802. Um, and the red part of the map circled here is where the part of Portsmouth affected by that fire. The other shaded parts um, refer to other fires that happened actually not that long after. There were a lot of fires um, in early American cities. So there's this law pictured here, for what it's worth, um, called an act for the relief of the sufferers by fire in the town of Portsmouth. And that law passed by Congress um, a few months after the fire happened. And this is the law that some historians, at least, consider the first American federal disaster relief legislation. Um, they're totally wrong, by the way. Um, it, it, if, if you read the law, and that's it, right? I mean, that is the entire law. The law did nothing to help widows and orphans and other people left destitute and homeless as a result of the fire. It merely established a moratorium on the collection of debts that local merchants owed to the U.S. Customs House in Portsmouth. President Thomas Jefferson sent Portsmouth's local relief committee a generous donation of $100 for humanitarian purposes after the fire, but he asked that his gift be kept anonymous because it came from him as a private citizen and not as president or as a representative of the United States government. And Jefferson actually does the same thing um, after a fire happens in Fredericksburg, Virginia in, I think, 1807. It's the exact same thing. Here's $100. Don't tell anybody I'm giving it. 
With one notable exception, humanitarian relief was not forthcoming from the federal government during the lifetimes of the founders. That exception was in 1827 when Congress granted the city of Alexandria $20,000 after a fire destroyed 53 buildings, leaving many people homeless. Now, we all know that Alexandria is now in Virginia, but back then it was part of the District of Columbia, and therefore it was governed by Congress. Even so, federal disaster relief for Alexandria was considered controversial. Congressman and future president James K. Polk spoke for a, a sizable minority of legislators when he condemned the measure and argued that it set a dangerous precedent. Um, in reality, though, it didn't. Um, instead, it was Congress's decision to protect the merchants and their business interests rather than to alleviate human suffering that set the precedent that endured in the United States until the post-Civil War era. Merchants benefited from similar legislation after Portsmouth's second big fire in 1806, and so did commercial interests in Norfolk and New York City when major fires occurred there in 1804 and 1835, respectively. Congress took these steps to help merchants in the aftermath of urban fires because cities and their ports, as sites of trade and sources of tax dollars, i.e. customs duties, were deemed essential to the republic's fiscal and economic health. Hurricanes, earthquakes, and other so-called natural disasters were also common in the early republic, but relief, if it ever happened at all, was totally locally organized and privately funded. Like Congress, state governments rarely allocated funds for disaster relief. And though Congress allowed settlers and speculators whose land holdings had been destroyed by the New Madrid earthquakes, come on, there we go, yeah. the New Madrid earthquakes, in eight, no, 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 no. Go back, there we go. Um, in 1811 and 1812, um, they allowed these people to swap lands for good ones um, after the earthquake destroyed the lands that they had. Um, that offer, though, was aimed mainly to strengthen U.S. control of the recently acquired Louisiana Purchase Territory by encouraging white settlement. The idea is the United States had gotten all of this territory as part of the Louisiana Purchase. They wanted white people to go out there and settle that land, to get it away from the Indians, to make it you know, productive and all of that. If your land got trashed by earthquakes, that, that kind of wasn't going to happen. So I think it's important to stop a bit and emphasize that congressional action or inaction um, was actually in keeping with the vision of the men who drafted and implemented the Constitution, who did not see disaster relief or any sort of assistance for suffering citizens as part of government's job, despite the fact that they gave the government under the new Constitution pretty impressive powers. Those powers chiefly pertain to military and fiscal matters, and their main purpose was to enable the government to fight wars, secure Western territory, and protect U.S. trade and commerce. There was no general federal disaster relief law until 1950, 1950, and, and I'm not screwing up that date, that's the right one. 
And there was also no laws or regulations at either the state or federal level to help prevent disasters or to minimize casualties that resulted from them. And there doesn't seem to have been much public demand for government intervention either. But that began to change slowly. And I would argue that the major factor behind that change was the steamboat, um, which was a popular, new, fast, and often very dangerous way of moving people and goods and antebellum America. Between 1860 and 1848, roughly 30% of all steamboats built in the United States were destroyed in explosions or related catastrophes, killing at least one in 5,000 passengers and injuring many others. Annual steamboat fatalities didn't get better over time. They actually got worse. They peaked at roughly 200 per year between 1848 and 1851. And we're not even talking about the people who like maybe lost an arm or had third degree burns or you know, whatever. Now these numbers admittedly might not be staggering. After all, the Elizabeth er Lisbon earthquake had killed about 40,000 people in a few hours from the earthquake, the fire, the tsunami. But there were two important things about steamboat disasters that made them alarmingly compelling to many Americans. First, because steamboats were increasingly ubiquitous. They were kind of everywhere where there was water, pretty much. Most people had either been on one or knew someone who had been on one, which made steamboat disasters more universally relatable than, say, hurricanes or even fires. Second, the rise of the steamboat coincided more or less exactly with other important changes in American popular culture. Um, specifically, the availability of cheap newspapers that thrive by publishing sensational stories known as the penny press, cheap penny press, um, advancements in printmaking and lithography, think Courier and Ives, right, those kind of people. And then finally, the growth of popular commercial entertainments, things like theater, panorama exhibits, um, and so forth, that, that could actually reenact or reconstruct disasters so that people could like go see them and go, ooh, ah, or whatever. Um, sensational words, and, and they're, okay, so wait a minute. There's my steamboat. And that's an example of a, of a courier print. Sensational words and images of exploding steamboats and their victims were literally everywhere in antebellum America. This came as a total surprise to me, but they're like everywhere. When the steamboat Louise, let me, let me give you an indication or an example of the kind of words I'm talking about, because you obviously can't read that from your seat, right? Um, when the steamboat Louisiana exploded in New Orleans in November 1849, one widely reprinted eyewitness account described the scene as follows, quote, the sight of the mangled bodies on every side, the groans of the dying and the shrieks of the agonized sufferers produced a general thrill of horror among the multitude. The body of a man was seen with the, with the head and one leg pulled off and the entrails torn out. I love people who smile or laugh when I read this stuff. It, it, it just, what is wrong with you? <laughs> a woman whose long hair lay wet and matted by her side had one leg off and her body was shockingly mangled 
They like that word. A large man, having had his skull mashed in, lay dead on the levee. His face looked as though it had been painted red, having been completely flayed by the scalding water. Others of both sexes crushed, scalded, burned, mutilated, and dismembered. And there were pictures. <laughs> Courier and Ives are well known today, even, um, for prints celebrating American industry, prosperity, and growth by portraying orderly cities, western vistas, and powerful machines. Less well known is that they also depicted the destruction of those very things. So Nathaniel Courier um, published at least 200 lithographs of steamboats, but more than one quarter of those lithographs showed steamboats that were exploding or otherwise, you know, colliding and, and, and basically wrecking. Um, and the first of those exploding steamboat lithographs is this one here of the Lexington. Um, and interestingly and importantly, this is an image that appeared on the front page of the New York Sun newspaper just three days after it happened in 1840, which was like really, really quick. Um, and then, you know, you could buy this and hang it in your living room or do, you know, whatever it is you wanted to do with it. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about the Lexington print is it's the first kind of big above the fold image in American newspaper history, and it's an exploding steamboat. Exploding steamboats generated popular demands for government intervention to impose and enforce safety standards. The first law passed by Congress in 1838 was totally ineffectual. The second one passed in 1852 saved lives. These laws represented the first federal regulation of private industries. With the entry of government into the disaster business, they also represented an important step in the emergence of a modern American cultural of disaster. To be sure, there would be some changes and additions in the coming years, um, especially in the area of humanitarian relief. The role of the federal government expanded on an ad hoc basis to address the challenges, for instance, of reconstruction in the southern states in ways that set important precedents, which made federal disaster relief far more common than it had been before the war, though obviously um, not nearly as frequent or as expansive as it would become a century later. In 1867, the federal government allocated a half million dollars for famine relief in places in the South that were affected by crop failures, floods, insect infestations, and yellow fever. In the 1870s and 1880s, Congress also provided funds and provisions um, for other parts of the country, mostly in the Midwest and on the Great Plains, that, that had been devastated by floods, tornadoes, and other disasters. Meanwhile, after the Civil War, the American Red Cross transitioned from helping sick and wounded soldiers to providing disaster relief. Clara Barton and her people went to Ohio and Texas for floods, to South Carolina for an earthquake, to Illinois for a tornado, and to Florida for yellow fever, all in the 1880s. The Johnstown flood, and we're getting near the end because, right, the book is from Jamestown to Johnstown. Um, the Johnstown flood in, um, in Pennsylvania in May of 1889 um, was Clara Barton's greatest challenge and the Red Cross's first really major relief effort. 
Um, much as they would today, Red Cross workers quickly arrived in Johnstown where they set up tents as hospitals, and you can see some of them here. They established temporary shelters for the homeless and distributed much needed relief and supplies. One other change, obviously, besides um, you know, photography, right, which, which is kind of getting to be a thing by the 1880s, one other change, though, was the speed with which information was able to travel about the disaster, due mainly to the use of the telegraph, um, which had been invented in the 1840s, but which really hadn't been used by journalists until the Civil War. In Johnstown, the flood began on a Friday morning. By that evening, some reporters were already there and sending words and pictures to audiences across America. Of course, the advent of radio in the 1920s and of television and social media later made disaster coverage even more immediate and more compelling. But I think I would argue that our modern culture of calamity was essentially established by the time Clara Barton received a hero's welcome in Washington when she returned from Johnstown that November. Thank you. I think I'm allowed to do questions for a while, so I would be happy to do that if anybody has anything they'd like to ask. No? I wanted a loop of like an exploding volcano that would just keep going to like kind of keep moving things along, but we couldn't do it. Yeah. No. Oh. Uh, was there a cultural divide or a cultural difference in, in terms of the way government assistance for natural disasters was handled between the races, uh, between the white culture and the, and the African-American culture? Internally within communities, or are you talking about government? Um, was it perceived as um, non-desirable to receive government assistance in, uh, in the white community, whereas it was not quite perceived as the, in the same way in the African-American community? Oh, I think everyone was pretty much happy to get it, get oh. relief when they needed it. I mean, what's really interesting, and this is kind of beyond my purview because it's mostly studies of like late 19th and early 20th century um, relief efforts, that, that you're able to get that really sort of granular analysis of who is getting what and why. Um, what's really interesting is that very often the relief committees um, you know, who tended to be sort of local upper class people um, would kind of give out relief based on what they believe people's need was. Um, and whether you were a man or a woman, whether you were rich or poor, whether you are, you know, black or white, um, often kind of helped determine that need. Um, so like, you know, one example, there's a really good book on the Chicago fire in 1871, um, they, and they left really good records behind. And, and I mean, you know, the, the author proved without a shadow of a doubt that, that if you were, you know, white, native-born, and female, um, and, and middle class or wealthy, you had the best chance of getting relief because the people who were giving out the relief assumed that women needed more help than men, um, assumed that, you know, upper class people, well, they're going to suffer more because they're not used to suffering. They're not either. They, so, you know, so it's this weird kind of thing. Um, you know, there are examples of, um, 
you know, it, whether you're talking about the earthquake in South Carolina in 1880-whatever um, in Charleston, or, you know, whether you're talking about Hurricane Betsy in New Orleans um, in, the, in the 1960s, um, you know, even if the federal government is kind of overseeing relief and the assumption is that, well, you know, of course, everybody's needs should be taken care of, um, once that money gets sort of put into local hands— um, they tended to be white middle class. I mean, they would they would clearly take care of their people before anyone else. But I think the assumption is that basically most people want help um, if they in, are in fact are suffering. Uh, I'm interested in what happens after disasters occur. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned at the beginning what happened in New York and all. And uh, you're looking at this dramatic picture of Johnstown flood. And you think about the flooding of Houston. And I mean, just the uh, uh, when Saddam Hussein left Kuwait and blew up all of those oil rigs and, and flooded Persian Gulf with oil. When we get past a certain number of news cycles, then we're off to the next issue. What? What do we know, going back at least to this, what do we know about how long it took to recover and, and why, why is it that news organizations or, or uh, folks don't seem to really hang in there for very long? Wow. Um, I mean, I think the how long it takes to recover part probably varies on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you know, it, it, so like one of the things, right, that I haven't mentioned at all is insurance. Um, insurance kind of, the first kind of insurance like invented, right, um, is maritime insurance for shipping. Um, that really goes back to like, you know, the Italian Renaissance and all of that. Um, the next type is fire insurance. And so, like, all of these fires that we're talking about in the early republic and later, um, what's happening after the fire is that the people who have fire insurance are getting their money and they're rebuilding, um, and the people who don't aren't. And, um, you know, back in the period that I'm mostly interested in, um, I haven't traced what happened to them, but I would imagine that at least in cities you could look at city directories and see where people are living and, and, and where they move um, over time. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it varies according to um, resources. Um, and increasingly, um, it also varies according to, you know, what experts say in terms of environmental impact um, and in terms of, you know, does it really make sense to rebuild on this spot if, in fact, the same thing could happen again, which, in fact, is a discussion that they have um, after Lisbon, and a lot of people were like, no, we should, shouldn't rebuild here. But the government, they're adamant um, that, in fact, they should. Um, your question about the, you know, what we call the news cycle um, it is, I mean, I think a, in some ways a much more complicated one um, in that, first of all, I mean, I think there's a difference between local and national news. Um, even back then. And so, like, stories about rebuilding in New Orleans might appear in New Orleans newspapers for a whole lot longer than they do on, you know, CNN or whatever. Um, 
But I mean, I also think that, and this is certainly true even in the 19th century, newspapers, television newscasts, whatever, um, are businesses, right? And, and they're looking to get audience. This is the way they make money. Um, you know, and there's something about the destructiveness of a disaster that, that, I mean, it's riveting. I mean, I'm reading about the Louisiana, and I can see you guys are more awake than you've been. You know, the, it's like, really? They're mangled? This is so exciting. Um, the, 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 the rebuilding in the aftermath of disaster, I think, is exciting and important to the people who were involved in it, but it's less exciting for audiences. And, and that's probably not a great answer because, I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, I'm really an early Americanist and the epilogue of the book is about Johnstown and it goes up to the 21st century. I felt like an undergraduate researching on the internet. It's like, oh, I got to know something about the 1950 law. <laughs> you know, I mean, and so, but my feeling is that if you like the book, the end's not going to matter that much. And if you don't like the book, you're never going to get to the end. So there you have it. <laughs> we have time for one last question. With him. Did your research carry you far, as far in time forward as uh, the, the uh, Galveston flood of 1901? Um, not Really, um, I mention it in passing in the epilogue it, from Jamestown to Johnstown. So really, I end in 1889. Um, but I mean, Galveston is super important, and and I mention it as you know. So Johnstown is the deadliest American disaster on record to that point. Galveston surpasses Johnstown, and that's Galveston's. I mean, unless you're from Galveston, and, and I'm sure then it would be important to you for all other reasons, but Galveston's real claim to fame is that it is the deadliest disaster in American history, still, as far as I know. So I mention it, but I don't really write a lot about it. But I mean, I think that I would argue that, that um, a lot of the things I'm talking about in the epilogue in reference to Johnstown are going to be played out again in Galveston, and they're going to be played out again. I mean, even, you know, there's a new book um, on um, the Great Flood of 1926 of the Mississippi River, um, and I think it, 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 it's just called the Great Flood. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible flood. And one of the things that's really interesting is, I mean, she, the, the author, is making an argument that this is like a totally different thing. So many things here that are happening are unprecedented. I think the only thing that, that's happening that's unprecedented in 1926 is that people are hearing about things on the radio. Um, and, you know, I, so, I mean, I think it really is Galveston looks a lot like Johnstown, except it's in Texas. But you have, what's different about Johnstown, though, is that um, race plays a really important part of what's going on there, and that there's a good article on Johnstown where the author makes a compelling case that um, the kind of white leaders of the city use the disaster and its aftermath um, as evidence that, in their view, the government needs to be changed from an elected mayor and city council to what was called a city manager form of government. And the upshot of all that was disenfranchising a lot of people, most of whom were African-American. 
you know, this is not to say that in Johnstown everyone was one big happy family. There were European immigrants in Johnstown, and they were kind of scapegoated in kind of the same way. So if you're interested in Johnstown, David McCullough, before he became super famous, wrote his first book on the Johnstown flood. And he talks about how, you know, the, the kind of native stock Americans in Johnstown referred to all the immigrant types as Hungarians. I don't know why they weren't, but the Hungarians were kind of scapegoated in the same way that African-Americans are gonna be scapegoated um, in Galveston later. So that's probably not the answer you wanted, but that's my answer. Thank you. Thank you.